Hey, Tyson Popplestone here. This is the Relax Running Podcast, and today I'm catching up with James Gurr, a uh, former 800 metre stud on the Australian circuit. He's a 146 man uh, for two laps of the track, which for any runners out there, you know that's absolutely ridiculously fast. I actually met James a few months ago, coincidentally, at a conference we were both at and started having a chat to him. And ever since that moment, I loved his passion and his enthusiasm for the sport. And I was really keen to to sit down and have a chat to him as I was as, as I was preparing for this podcast. So I reached out to him for this week when I was up in Sydney and uh, he was more than happy to come and have a chat. I, I think this chat's great. I uh, What I like about it is he really breaks down the, the complexity of the sport and um, he's got some practical tips for uh, for anyone, regardless of where you are in your running journey, whether you're brand new to it or you're competing at an elite level. Uh, Gurry's got a whole heap to offer. So, um, hey, I'm sure you'll, you'll enjoy this. I certainly did. Anyway, I'll get out of your way. Uh, enjoy this conversation with me and James Gurr. So, mate, I'm excited. Not often I'm up in Sydney, and it's cool to have a bit of a chance to to sit down with uh, with some some elite runners. So I was pumped when I said that I was coming up this way that you were willing to come and have a chat. Thanks for jumping on. Yeah, no worries, mate. Glad to be on, mate. It's um. It's as I said, it's a it's a rare opportunity to sit down with people of of your caliber, athletes of your caliber, and and just be able to pick their brains. And I'm excited because um, I think one of the things with training as well, especially when you're competing at a really high level, is a lot of athletes like to hold their cards close to their chest. They don't like to to go on too much about their little secrets and the things they've picked up along the way. But um, someone in your position who's obviously who who's ran at like a really high level and um, is is now you know out of the sport. Unfortunately for Athletics Australia, <laughs> it's uh, it's a good chance to sit down and, and I want to pick your brain. the The whole idea of this podcast is is just to be able to take some nuggets of wisdom and, and things that have taken you years to learn and and hopefully pass it on to you know people who have been in the sport for a few years or or triathletes or even people who are in other sports <coughs> and just wanting to improve their running. So, um, mate, there's a million things that that I'd love to be able to chat to you about, but one of the things that are uh, I thought would just be a cool place to, to to get it started at, so people know a bit more about you. Is is maybe just give us a little bit of an overview of of you know of, of what you've ran, what your event was, and uh, and and how you found your way into the sport. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it is okay, I guess, now to divulge the training secrets. Now that I have retired, it's not as though I've really got anything to hide. Um, I'll try not to reveal maybe too much because uh, my coach is still coaching, so she might be like, <laughs> "You're letting you're, you're letting secrets out. Don't do too much of that." Um, well, I mean, look, I actually started out as a, well, in terms of athletics, I mean, it was just something I always did in school um, and was quite good at. Um, but dad himself was a sprinter. I think, um, I'm trying to remember the year he won a New South Wales state title for the 100. Um, I think it was 1970, I think. It was 70, 71, around that, around that time. <clears throat> uh, and then, yeah, we, we, myself and my brother, we, we always ran through school. Um, we didn't do anything more than just the inter-school sports. Dad was very... Uh, adamant about that he didn't want us burning out when we were young if that's of course what we wanted to keep doing um, and I didn't really start taking it up really seriously until my last year of high school and back then I was a 400 runner um, the, I could always run decent eights but I hated the event because it hurt so much um, it's not to say the four doesn't but it just hurts for less mm. um, and yeah, I continued running some decent, you know, 400s, had a couple of, you know, I was never an exceptional junior, I was adequate, but not enough to make a junior team. Uh, and then had a bit of a breakthrough um, 
in the 400 in 2004 and, you know, started making national finals, started getting to the 46 vicinity in 2005. Um, I had a pretty unfortunate year when it came to it. I think it was it was a bit of a weak year because John Stephenson wasn't in form since he was training in America. Ben Offerins was only just coming up through the ranks at the time. Um, and a lot of the guys were, were, were not running all that well that year. So I, I think I had an outside chance of a medal but suffered a navicular stress fracture. Uh, and I tried to run on it at nationals and, um, yeah, it ended up breaking on me in the semifinal completely. Oh. Uh, still managed to limp across for a 46.9. I'd say <laughs> I'd like, it makes me wonder what I could have done on, on two good feet. Um, yeah, and I ended up having surgery uh, 20, oh, sorry, 72 hours later. Um, I've still got a, the screw on my foot to this day, um, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't even set off the metal detectors at the airport. So <laughs> no one's, no one's the wiser, but um, yeah, continued running fours, um, got down to, a bit, got down to 46 and a half. Uh, and then when I got the offer to go to college, that was when I was convinced slash tricked, you know, there was mm-hmm. maybe a bit of a uh, bit of trickery involved in getting me to, to move to the 800 because they knew I didn't want to do it. Um, my coach over there, um, he was a US Olympian from Los Angeles in 84, a guy called John Marshall. He was uh, the head of uh, head coach at Villanova University for quite some time, uh, 143.9 runner, 143.92 I think was his PB. Um, so he obviously knew a thing or two about 800s. And, um, yeah, that was a learning experience. I mean, college was probably the best three years of my life, not only because it was a lot of fun, um, maybe in some cases a bit too fun. <laughs> um, as college tends to be, uh, but it was just meeting meeting a, a group of people who I probably never felt more accepted by. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was like minded, and you know, it took me took me a few years to really learn the event. I had some ups and downs, and probably put a bit too much pressure on myself to deliver. And I had a I had a respectable college career. Um, I was never an all American or anything like that, but I, I think I got down to about one forty eight. Five, I think, in college. Um, I got down to 148.9 my first year and just didn't really improve a lot mm. after that. Um, and it wasn't actually until I came back from college that I changed my approach because I wasn't under obligation to keep running at meet after meet after meet and doubling events for the for team points, which is a lot of what the college culture is about. Um, and, you know, got back to my roots and started to get some more 400 work in and switched and trained with Penny Gillies, and she had done, a, done an amazing job with Joel Milburn, got him down to 44.8 uh, for the Beijing Olympics when he was struggling for quite some time. He was only running 47s, 48s. Um, so, yeah, that was when it went from one year, it went from 148.5 to 146.7. Jeez. Totally bypassed 147. <laughs> Why bother stopping there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, so that was when, when everything kind of broke through and had each year progressed a bit. And then um, in twenty after 2012, had a pretty um, – had a bit of a heartbreak at Nationals. Uh, a lot of the people weren't running because we'd all run an Olympic trials and I thought maybe this is a chance for an easy title. Um, came in rather sick. Um, I won't go into the details of how I was sick, um, but it wasn't pleasant. Mm. And I ended up running the worst race of my whole season and finishing third, uh, which it was just it was just a horrible, horrible day. It's probably the one race I wish I could I could take back. Yeah. Um, what, what year did you get over here from college? When did you come back? Because I remember 
um, just out of the blue, I remember seeing your names on the 800 meter start list, and then at the top of the 800 meter finish results, and I was thinking, where, where did this bloke come from? I had no idea, and I knew you had a background in 400. So, yeah, when, at, yeah. What point did you come back? Uh, 2009. Um, I graduated the summer of 2009, um, then finished up the season, um, and then so I moved back to Australia. Around when the World Champs in Berlin were on, because I remember just getting back and then watching the World Championships on on TV um, maybe a week after I got back. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and that was the thing. I did kind of fly under the radar a bit with a lot of people because I came back for the 08 Olympic trials and ran horribly. Didn't even make the final. It was an embarrassment. Um, And so a lot of people weren't really expecting me. A couple of people knew who I was. But they knew that I was still a novice over 800. Um, people, the main people that knew me thought, okay, this is the guy that can run, you know, 46 for a four, but what can he do for an eight? Mm. So I stuck under the radar a bit. I think when I got people's attention was just at a, a um, club championships race where myself and Lachlan Renshaw, um, in pretty average conditions, just had a head-to-head. And people, I remember people coming up to me after the race going, pretty much who are you and going, Oh, we just saw some guy who was still ahead of Renshaw with 70 to go. And Lockie beat me in that race. In fact, he beat me in every race bar one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really got a, I really got used to seeing what Lockie's back looked like. You good back. Yes. He, uh, I, I was very familiar myself. with what his back looked like over the years. <laughs> it was very, or, or seeing maybe his arms go past me in the last 50 meters, which seemed to be a pretty regular occurrence. Um, but yeah, people um, were saying, who, who are you? What did you, pretty much as you said, where did you come from? Mm. They had no idea who I was. And, then that was there was a few people there and it was it wasn't a huge crowd it was just interclub but then at the hunter track classic that was when people really started to notice and it was my second race of the year and i almost ran my pb um i think i ran 148.6 it was third behind ryan gregson yeah and uh my training partner tristan garrett who was also making big breakthroughs he came from a 400 background too and that was when i thought oh okay all right well He's had one decent race against Renshaw here. He's just finished third at Hunter. Okay, we're, we're taking notice. And, and in that race was Nick Bromley, who was national champion at the time, and he had finished fourth. So people thought, well, okay, Bromley hasn't had his best race, but okay, these, you know, Garrett and Gurr, they're obviously mean business. And that was when Melbourne occurred, which was actually the only race that did beat Lockie. Um, and David Redisha was in that race. He opened up his season in a one forty three one. Not a bad way to open the year. Just like not too bad. Yeah. Mate, uh, I, wanted, um, I wanted to ask you something. You said you said a, a couple of minutes ago, and one thing that I think is is so common, especially for new runners that are just unsure about like what to experience. Because we all it's a pretty it's a pretty uncomfortable sport, and uh, it's a, like heavily renowned for for how brutal it is. But you said. Moving from 400, which I personally find just as horrendously painful as, as you know, an 8 or 15. Maybe you just get it over and done with a bit. I was never quite as quick as you. Mine, mine probably took about 50 seconds rather than 46. But one of the things that you mentioned was the 800, the transition to that mm. distance was, was something where you had to just learn to deal with that pain. Absolutely. Um, and obviously for a bloke who's, who's run the times that you've run, you, you, you obviously came up with a few strategies or a few little management uh, procedures to help deal with that like was there anything that like when you hit the 400 meter or 500 meter mark and that lactic started to build 
that, that you started to implement? Because I always love to pick the minds of athletes yeah. around the subject. I, I mean, us athletes are a bit of a funny bunch. We all have our little our little cues and our little um, our little reminders or or things that we go through our head every race. I, I would always remember um, getting through the first 300 thinking, okay, first 300, we're all settled in. Where are you? How do you feel? And, you know, because usually in an eight, the first 200 people are looking to establish a position, so they usually get out fairly quickly. Um, and then, you know, you get to the bell and then you get to 300 to go. Again, how are you feeling? Time to move. Yeah. This is where people are going to start moving. And typically that's where I did like to start to move um, and start to draw people out. I was, despite the fact that I had a sprint background, I was never a huge fan of slow tactical races. Number one, you can be in the wrong position. Um, and two, you're letting people who aren't as fast as you in with a chance. Mm. If, it was a, if it was a fast, honestly run race, there are people who ordinarily wouldn't beat you, but you're giving them a chance. Yeah. So, and they can be very, very dicey. Um, so typically I'd like to make my races fast, but I would sometimes have little cues go off in my head. In fact, I could actually remember 20, 2010 nationals. Um, there was, there was a, a, a song that I would listen to. Uh, very, we're all superstitious with our little soundtracks we listen to pre-race. And there was a song that was, would go off in my head with 300 to go. I'm not going to say what it is because people are going to look it up and go, oh, my God. Come on. you got to let us know. Yeah. you got to let us know. You run 146. You can listen to whatever you want. Okay. Um, it was <laughs> – I'll edit it out if I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> it's so it, – it's supposed to sound really 80s yeah. with the old synthesizers and all of that. It was, this song, it was this song called Spirit of the Night by this group called Tesla Boy, and I don't even know if they brought out anything after that. I heard it of all things when I was working retail at, at EB Games and they would always have these store demos and they'd have these various tracks playing and that was around when Shazam came out. Yes. So I was like, oh, yeah, don't mind the sound of that just because it had a good rhythm to it. It was sounded a bit corny. The, the, the synthesizer sounds were horrible. But for whatever reason, I just loved the rhythm <laughs> of it. And it went off in my head 300 to go. So yeah. to say, start building, start building, start building. And... I just remembered thinking there were a few things that went through my head, thinking you've got the lead, all you're going to do is hold it. Mm. Easier said than done. But I was also thinking as fast, hopefully Bromley isn't close enough because I knew how much of a wicked kick Nick Bromley had. And there was a reason he won four national titles mm. because his finish was just incredible. And if you gave him a, half a chance, if he, was, if he was close to you and he had enough in the gas tank, Chances were he was going to run over the top of me. Pocket rocket. So he, he thrived off slow races um, or races that were around a 147 vicinity, 148. He was damn near unbeatable. Mm. And it wasn't until guys like Renshaw came along who got aggressive and started running 146s, 145s, that it was extending, you know, Brom to his limit. So that was the whole thing thinking, okay, I don't know where he is but hopefully I've got enough of a gap where we can all hold him off. Um, but, yeah, so fortunately we were right, um, and um, he was coming home very fast, but just albeit too late. But, yeah, we have we have those little cues that go off um, you know, midway through the race uh, where you're thinking, okay, where are you? How do you feel? How's your rhythm? Things like that. So 
um, I guess it depends from race to race, and sometimes you'll you'll um, probably the other other cue that I had probably later in my career. It was after watching um, Telfik McCluthy, um, the former Olympic mm-hmm. fifteen hundred champ from Algeria. He ran a one k in in Nice, ran two thirteen, I think, and he went through his first eight hundred in one forty six. Which is depressing for me because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to run ten more meters after that. I, that that's me at my limit. Um, and I remember there was the French. It does turn out he had a little bit of assistance along the way, though, doesn't it? Well, it hasn't been proven, but I is think that right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be shocked. Okay. He's, he's always been a bit dubious. That being said, I have loved watching him run, but yeah, to say that he's been dubious, I think yeah. I, let's just say this: if he got caught, I wouldn't exactly be surprised. Sure. sure. Um, and I remember the French commentator, or sorry, the French meat promoter who was calling the split, yelling at McCluthy with 200 to go and yelling, Garances, meaning 46. Garances, and just yelling uh, because they were going for a world record, I think, or a meat record. And that was like huge, 200 to go. I would just think of that Garances mm, in my head and I would accelerate into yeah. that final turn. So there were little things and little cues that would go off in my head just from watching certain athletes and taking bits and pieces from that. So that was certainly, I think, what would you know some of the things that would maybe go through my head. Yeah, just as you walk race. through that race, like I, uh, I find that really interesting because whenever a young athlete or, or a new athlete will ask me a, cre- a question around, like, what do I need to focus on when I'm running? I said, well, the first thing you need to be is aware of, of how you're feeling at that point in mm, your race because, absolutely. as you said, 300 metres in, it's okay, we're settled, how am I feeling? Um, find a nice little rhythm but what a lot of people don't do and what what I've always found interesting through uh, my own athletics journey was before you can adjust anything or before you can take control over your breath or what your arms are doing you first have to know how you're feeling how it is you're actually running are you smooth are you clear is is so if the answer was no I'm feeling rubbish um, as an elite athlete, you've got to learn to adjust and um, and sort of roll with that like well, is there anything that you do you also to- have to ask yourself very quickly why am I feeling rubbish? It could be because the first 200 was too hot. Mm-hmm. You, everyone might have gone mad in the first 200, like, okay, that was too hot. I don't, okay, I, I definitely felt that. I'm 300 in. That was quick. Where you've got to be like, okay, calm down. Calm down. You're not going to keep this going. Um, there are some races where you think, okay, you don't feel that great. Just stay on, just stay on the back of somebody, stay in contact. And just, stay exactly where you are unless of course they're going again like they're going absolutely mental Mm. then yeah you've got to you've just you know you've got to let them go yeah and hope that they'll come back to you uh but look there are just some days where we don't feel good and we've just got to kind of just got to deal with it and i think that's something i learned to deal with certainly um pre-race there have been times when i've been warming up and i have felt rubbish but I've often gone out and run an absolute blinder. And I could say that even with my PB. I did not feel good in the warm-up. And then I went and ran a PB. Mm. One thing that Luke Matthews said a few weeks ago, which you pretty much just said then and I like, is um, athletes like to go to the warm-up track and feel as though they've got that little bit of bounce and feel as though they're floating and feel as though they're just going to cruise around the track at a really high speed. But those those experiences are few and far between. One thing that he said, he's like, okay, it's not a question of whether I feel confident, but it's a question of whether I'm competent. 
And just like you said, to, to run an 800-meter PB on a day where you're feeling rubbish, yeah, sure, like maybe you didn't feel confident, but I'm sure a bloke like you had worked on his confidence enough at that stage to know that it was more than just a feeling, but you, you were still competent to run um, at, a, at a high speed like that. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and you, you need to also say to yourself, especially later on when you've been through an adverse situation but come through it, you need to remind yourself, hang on, remember that time when you didn't feel so good? And I remember the first time I felt bad in a, in a, in a warm-up was when I ran a 400 PB. That was the year I, I started to actually, you know, run some credible times. Um, I ran uh, – I was warming up and I thought, oh, God, this is, this is not good. And I was like, just, just relax. Just relax. You're fine. And then went out and ran a full second PB over a four. And I've always remembered that day. Anytime I've been feeling bad in a warm-up, I'm like, remember that day you felt bad? You remember the day you ran your PB? You know, there have been times when I've run PBs off, off what you think is an average warm-up when your body is actually okay. It may not feel great, but your body's still good to go. And you've just got to have faith in the training that you've done and think, okay, don't worry about that. And, you know, sometimes, look, there are going to be days where you will have a bad race and there's nothing you can do about it. Unfortunately, that's it. That's, that's, that's sport. It's brutal. It's unforgiving. Mm. And, you know, you see that happen. Um, I mean, 2016, I went to Japan for two races to qualify, attempt to qualify for Rio. Ran, you know, I was pretty much fresh off the plane. Felt like rubbish. Like, I felt okay in a warm-up. Ran 150. And I was like, you've got to be joking. They flew me over here to run 150. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. And then I had another race in Kawasaki five days later, I think it was. You know, had a chance to loosen up, get some training done, felt a lot better. Legs were waking up, 146. Five days, four-second difference. Mm. And some there are some days where you won't be able to do anything about it. Okay, we, we, have, we have our bad days, but... If you're feeling bad and you convince yourself that's bad, then you've already defeated before the gun goes off. That's a great point. And I think in a sport like running, which really does, you can't hide. You can't hide from your performance. And as much as we all, in, I guess it's in whatever we do, but especially in, in the running scene, um, as much as you want to have every day a breakthrough, every day a win, every day a medal, every day a PB, um, it's just it's not going to happen with your body like fluctuating in energy and, 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 and illness and, and health and things like that. It's you, you do have to give and take. But you mentioned earlier that you know disappointment was a part of the sport for sometimes. There was there was times where you would you know not run anywhere near as as well as you want. And I think it, until you get until you get used to that feeling of actually having to deal with disappointment, frustration, it's hard to know what to do with it. Did you have any? Any sort of uh, little strategies that you use to keep you up and about, especially if you're halfway through a season mm. and you've still got you know eight, nine, ten races to go. It's it's easy to psych yourself out that it's a wasted season um, if you if you can't keep yourself up and about. So how do you, how did you actually deal with disappointment and and, and stepping back to the start line uh, in terms of a in terms of a headspace? Like how did, how did you get your head on on your side? You had to. Well, first off, you had to talk to your coach. Got to be able to communicate with your coach. And that was one thing Penny Gillies, uh, my, my coach for the majority of my career, uh, well, certainly my 800 career, um, was very good at. She was always a very level-headed, <clears throat> very level-headed coach. And, you know, she'd tell it as it was. She wouldn't sugarcoat her words. Uh, but at the same time, there was, you know, it wasn't, uh, there, it was always in a productive or constructive manner. Um, and it was a case of saying, okay, well, what do we do from here? She would ask me how I'm feeling. She would ask my opinion on what I think we should do. Um, she would factor it in. 
Um, and we'd, you know, I'd usually trust her to do the right thing, but it didn't mean that my opinion didn't count. And we'd, we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, look, how did you feel? Okay, I felt a bit tired in that race. I feel as though we need to maybe take a couple of races off here and rebuild. Yeah, okay, good, I agree. Let's go back and do a block. And 2016 was a, a, a big example of that where I almost got the qualifier in Melbourne. Things went wrong. Uh, Olympic trials final, um, had Josh Ralph, unfortunately, uh, get tripped and fall in front of me and almost take me down with him, which ruined both our races. Um, <clears throat> but after that, it was a case of, okay, that didn't go to plan. We've just got to get ourselves together. We get back into training. Then, you know, with disappointment, you know, running that 150 and saying, okay, my legs just felt horrible. Okay, let's rebound, 146. And then we're like, okay, we get back to some training again. We've got to figure out when the race is. But we need to, we're going to run out of gas if we just keep racing, 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 and racing. So it's a case of finding that balance between keeping enough in the tank to keep racing at a certain level because by the end of the 2016 season, by my last attempt, I was done. Mm. Couldn't even break 150 yeah. by, by, by the end. It was, it, I, was, I was that exhausted and that drained. The body was just basically crying to me, no more. So it's, it's, it, you've really got to find that balance and, and sometimes you'll have to sacrifice a couple of races if that means being able to maintain your season. Mm. How did you find that? Because I, I know the feeling of, of being a former athlete myself, of um, having your eyes so firmly set on a particular race and, and just knowing that all your training was directed towards that particular race and three weeks out knowing that that plan's going to have to change. It's I think the older that I've gotten, the more athletes that I've worked with, I've, I've started to realise that flexibility is in fact a, a huge component and a lot of the time it's the athletes who are, who are very rigid, the athletes who are very uptight and stressed about um, – like Bruce Lee's got a great quote where he just talks about just be water, just roll with mm. the punches, just adjust. And I can't help but notice that the best athletes on the circuit seem to be the one that do roll with the punches. Was that something that came natural to you or was something that you, you sort of just worked on? That wasn't as easy in my younger days because um, <clears throat> certainly when uh, when my dad was more involved in my athletics, um, my dad was a stress head. Mm. Um, not all the time. But it was – there were a lot of times when I was very anxious when he was around, and that didn't help. Um, it probably wasn't until later on where – so, I mean, early on, it was natural for me to get stressed because he was stressed. And even later on, I would get stressed for certain reasons, almost like a, as a bit of a byproduct. I think it was when I, you know, got into my mid-20s, mid to late-20s, where I learned to relax a bit more. Uh, because I was more independent, of course, but it was just a case of being able to um, just take a deep breath and just and uh, you, you you're older and a bit more mature, and you know you've, you, you've you've been through it for a while. You've been through those experiences. You've been through you've been through some highs. You've been through some lows to the point where you just have to roll with it and go. Okay, we can't dwell on it. Take something from it, but if you dwell on it. It's just going to destroy you. Mm. And with all that nervous energy and panic, it just that saps an athlete. And you just can't afford you can't afford to do that because otherwise you're going to light up for the next race all nervous, all tense, going, I remember what happened in that last race. And you know, okay, sometimes you can use that as a positive going, we don't want that to happen again, and you go in all motivated. But that's using it as motivation, not stress. Mm. Stress isn't a motivator. Stress is just a detractor. 
Um, you can be angry with your race, and I often ran at my best when I was angry. Um, <clears throat> I get this, guess there's different elements of angry. I mean, when I ran my first 146, I came in upset because my college track and field team had just had their program pulled. I had graduated by then, but because it was something I held very closely to me, I came in very, you know, quite angry and like, okay, you know, let's let's do this. If I had a bad race prior, I'd be like, I don't want that to happen again. I'd come out and fire away. Um, you know, I had a shocking 400 at, at ACT champs in 2016. Absolutely dismal. And then it was like a wake-up call. I used that actually as a catalyst and then went and won Adelaide for the eight. So it's a case of you can be angry and you can be maybe a bit stressed immediately afterwards, but you've got to let that stress go because mm. if that remains with you, then your next race is going to suffer and the race after that because the stress starts to build. Yeah, I find that so interesting that you ran well. And as you say, there's different levels of anger. Um, one of my great mates, Kale Simons, he was a – um, as a junior, just a, a freak. I think he ran about three forty three. He ran eight oh three. So he's a little like the longer distances, I guess, like, especially when it comes to three k. Than yourself. But one thing that he used to always, he would psych himself up and get himself so angry before a race, and he would just come out. And his best races were always. I don't know if you know Matt Colo. Is Not the name. Yeah. So he was around a lot as a junior as well. But as like an eighteen year old guy, he was one of the hot shots on the, especially in Victoria, but Australian mm. scene. And I remember watching Kale psych himself up before a 1,500-metre run and come out, and uh, Colo was well and truly the favourite. I think he beat Colo still beat him, but it was by about half a step. But to anyone who knew Kale, they knew he just raced out of his skin. Mm. And I remember um, stepping out onto the, the race and trying to get myself <laughs> angry and worked up. And I, it's just, for whatever reason, that part of the pro, it just I, I, I just couldn't get it to gel. I always seemed to run well when I was relaxed. And again, like a, it's a real trial yeah. and error, kind of, as, you, as you already mentioned, but... Um, it's a, a real trial and error kind of thing. And I guess, it, again, it, it only comes with practice, experience, and, and knowing what you respond to. Yeah, I mean, look, there were times when I raced when I was angry but in a bad way mm -hmm. and would completely botch my race yeah, because I, especially in an 800 or a 400, if, if, you're the wrong, if, you're, if you're the wrong type of angry, I guess, you, you're going to misjudge your race. You're going to go out aggressive and blow up. You know, you, there, there's ways of channeling that anger. Um, it, it was like a, I know it's a bit of an oxymoron, it was like a very calm anger where it was to the point like you just wanted to channel it into the performance uh, as opposed to just going out there and, ah, you know, just going out there, you know, like a lunatic mm. uh, because you just can't do that, especially in a four or an eight. That's, you can't, you, you just can't go out like a madman um, unless you're David Rudisha, <laughs> yes. you know, and even, even he would have his limits. So, um it was a case of really knowing how to how to channel your emotions correctly, and again, that came with age. Because certainly during college, the college years, I channeled my I I I, I dealt I didn't deal with anger or disappointment in a good way. There were times that I really underperformed, and I think that was where I really learned, you know, how you're supposed to behave um, in terms of dealing with your emotions leading up to a race. There were still some times when I didn't necessarily deal with my emotions very well. After the race, there were some times, um, some times where I look back on with a little bit of shame. I, I think when that 2012 national final where I was sick and did lose, um, I didn't deal with that very well. Mm. Um, uh, that's probably one one moment I wish I'd rather forget. Uh, and there are times when, yeah, I probably didn't deal with it in the most sporting manner, and 
Um, a lot of it's out of emotion. It's not. It's ne- it was never personal. Um, but sometimes that raw emotion sometimes gets the better of you, and yeah, you've got to just be able to deal with that, or at least deal with it behind closed doors. Yeah, it's a good point. I um actually I was I was speaking with Craig Mottram just a few a few weeks ago down at the athletics track, and he was explaining to me that um, everyone who's into athletics would have seen his race in two thousand and six, the five k, the MCG. Um, uh, sorry, no, no, fifteen hundred. Sorry, yeah, where he's tripped with. Andy Madley. Yeah, well, about 700 metres to go. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, actually, I mean, no, it was probably about five. Uh, uh, no, it was just, um, yeah, it was just over 700 metres. It was to go. too, yeah. yeah right it was the two laps to go. That's now, right. Now going around the first turn. Yeah, I do remember that very yeah. clearly. And I remember others, uh, I, I was asking him, just, I don't know how we got on the subject, but he was explaining to me just like the emotions that were going on in his body at the moment. Like initially, he was like, all right, I'm going to get back on, on the back of this pack. Then he realised it wasn't going to happen. He's like, all right, just like once you finish this race, like there's 100,000 people in the stadium, people are watching all around the world, just hold it together. And uh, he was saying he, he got across the line, he dropped an F-bomb, you could see it on camera. And then he's like, mate, I went like I went down the little alleyway and he's like punching stuff and kicking. And he goes, yeah, you know what, like you, you got to <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult to learn. Okay. It's difficult to learn because especially when you put your heart and soul into anything um, and you're on a big stage like that and through an accident that was not even your fault – just uh, ruined your whole plan, your your, your potential at winning a, a Commonwealth gold medal. It must be it must be tough to deal Absolutely. with. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people really don't. People who aren't in athletics, they really don't understand. I mean, the number of times when, just say, if a race did go wrong, and I would have people look where their heart might have been in their right place, but they would say to me, "It's just a race. It's not just a race. Mm. It's a race that you've sacrificed and sweated and bled for." Uh, where in the blink of an eye, it's all gone wrong, which is why you see athletes of any sport so emotional after a loss because of what they've put into it. And especially if something goes catastrophically wrong, which isn't their fault, it's hard to deal with. And, you know, I thought, if I remember correctly, I thought Craig dealt with it fairly well. He went straight through the mix zone. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree. I thought he did as well. It was just interesting. He went straight through the mix zone. And then probably got into the tunnel and started mm. hitting things, but at least he was out of view. Yeah. And then, to his credit, once he had cooled off, he came back for an interview. Yeah. Yeah, smart move. Yeah. But he was smart enough to know, I'm not going to interview right now because <laughs> I'm going to say something I'm going to regret, and this is on national television, this isn't going to end well. And he actually was smart enough to say, let's just cool off mm. and we'll come back. Yeah. And that was something I thought he he generally did very, very well with. And, you know, you can't um, – and he probably had his moment um, in the 2000 Olympic trials when he tripped with Nick Howarth, I believe it was, um, and they got into a near altercation. And I think he had probably learnt from that little spit um, and then thought, okay, well, six years later – he, he handled it exactly the right way, mm. even if in, in his own mind he thought he could have maybe acted a little cooler. Well, very easy to say. Yeah. Mate, we've already sort of talked about the fact that it's quite a unique individual sport. And um, though there's certain foundations that are put in place when it comes to the subject of, of training and race preparation and stuff, I'd I'd be really interested just to pick your brains a little bit on, on how you um, structured your training, especially mm. for an event like 800. It's obviously enough endurance to need a few Ks in the legs, but you obviously can't sacrifice that speed. So what... Like what? Kind, uh, what I'm interested in is just giving uh, you know the the audience listening mm. a bit of an overview on on how different athletes prepare for different skills. Um, how, how did you guys structure your week? Obviously, leading into a race, it's going to be different to 
to foundation over over winter and things like that. Sure. But uh, let, let, let's just go through winter and then maybe we'll move to summer and, okay. and in the lead up to race preparation. Sure. So it's the middle of winter. Um, yeah, you know, you, you still got a couple of months until you're back on the track racing. Mm-hmm. H- how did you guys structure that week? What did you include? Okay, the thing that was really important for me, now my training did change a bit since switching to Penny Gillies uh, in 2009 when I came back from college. <clears throat> um, the first year was very four eight work uh, because I was doing a lot of my sessions with Joel Milburn, who was still very much in good form. Um, I think he made Commonwealth Games uh, in 2010, that coming season. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, it, yeah, I did a lot of my sessions with him, and it was very important for me to rediscover my 400 speed. That was something I lost a little bit in college. Mm. And with me, for me being a four guy moved up, if my fours were slow, my eights were slow. And I always needed to run fours. I needed speed. Now, obviously, uh, my first season, it was interesting. Uh, even in the base season, there wasn't anything much over a 600-meter length for a rep, um, apart from maybe when we'd be uh, Macquarie Hospital and there'd be like maybe a 500-meter loop, and occasionally I would be doing two-lap loops. But generally, my first season, it was, it was a lot of intense lactic work, which I think actually worked best for me. We started to increase the volume a bit for the for for some coming seasons in, in 2011 and 2012, and I think that did help. Um, but we still kept that element of speed in there. Um, again, the 400s were still were still quite good, um, so that was very important important for us to um, to keep that element in. So we'd be doing at the most, I'd be doing maybe repeat kilometres. Um, that was about as far as it, I mean, that, that would be as far as it got. Yeah. And how many of those would you do in a session? I think at the most six. Yeah, sure. Six maybe. Um, and that, that was for me. I mean, Penny had to adapt the training depending on who she was dealing with. Um, you know, and whereas I went, when I left Penny for a couple of years, I went to Santa Monica for a year and trained with Joe Douglas. He, um, he trained like Olympic medalists, um, and you know, I think for a period he was training Johnny Gray, who still Gee, has the yeah. record. Like Johnny Johnny ran for the Santa Monica Track Club. So Joe Joe coached, um, you know, two forty three second four hundred runners. Um, Steve Lewis and Danny Everett. Um, now, granted, Joe was probably getting on a bit by this stage. Um, his memory wasn't quite what it used to be. He was in his, uh, I think, he was seventy seven at the time. Um, but Joe probably gave me way too much volume. And I ended up having the worst season of 800 meter running in my life. Um, I was slow. I was injured. I just had no speed. Um, so that was the big wake up call. When I came back to Australia after Santa Monica, that was when I realised, um, okay, people, especially the Americans, they love their mileage. People talk about you need more mileage. You need more mileage. No, for me that was detrimental. Mm. I needed to keep intensity. I needed to keep quality. Yes, get a bit more mileage in there. Yes, okay, we'd have some long runs, but we wouldn't want to make them too long. Otherwise, we'd be starting starting to lose the speed. We'd be losing the turnover. So, you know, for me, there was a lot of 400 work still mixed in. Less so as my career went on, but we still had to keep that. Like one of the things we would do in preparation for when the season had, had begun, I would go in the morning and do a hill session mm. in the morning, go out to Interclub in the afternoon and run a four on tired legs where it was teaching me not only how to pack up but also get speed work in 
you know, so I was doing speed work under fatigue mm. and that was one of the staple sessions and people thought I was a lunatic for doing it, but hey, guess what? It worked. Yeah. And it makes sense. Like going into an 800 meter run where you're still required to run at speed with tired legs. It does. Like just on paper, you look at that, you go, ah, mm. interesting. Yeah, interesting. absolutely. I mean, if you're going to be a championship runner, you've got to learn how to run the rounds. Yeah. So we'd be doing, yeah, the hill session followed by a fall was always a good little staple. And if I could, I knew I was in shape when I could go do my hill session and come out in the afternoon and run a 47. <sighs> that is in shape. You know, I think the quickest I ran was a 47.8 after doing a morning hill session. That's when I knew I was good to go. <laughs> yeah. That's a great session. And then um, uh, summer season rolls around. It's uh, it's time to shine. you got race on the Saturday. Um like just from a from a Sunday to sort of the say your race is the following Saturday Sunday what are you doing um, just sort of w- walk us through your week because it'd be interesting just to know what a, a person in your position does um, there. Okay, if it was a Saturday race, if it was just a, a Grand Prix mate, mm-hmm. um, you know we'd 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 do something reasonably intense but fast on a Tuesday. Thursday was sometimes even sometimes on a Thursday. Or maybe if it was a Wednesday, we'd sometimes do a Wednesday session instead. We'd usually train Tuesday, Thursday. Sometimes we'd even do a Wednesday session and do something very intense but give ourselves enough time to recover. Um, If it was a Thursday session, it'd be something quality and fast but nothing that was going to take too much out of the legs. Um, And then, um, then, yeah, I'd always always try to make a habit of flying down night before. Yeah, okay. um, Just so I could get a good night's sleep and get up early, have my break, you know, just just do that little routine and things like that and – um yeah that was always that was always very important yeah you are you just mentioned there and i was going to ask you about this um but before we wrapped up wrap it up you got 15 minutes or so yeah, yeah sure. awesome yeah, man because awesome, i could pick your brain all afternoon um but one of the things yeah you just mentioned then was the idea of like a little routine mm. um sorry i've been in the game now long enough to know my own routine and the fact that people respond so differently to, to their own little routine what was uh what was your routine if you you know it was race day you're waking up um, okay. Um, yeah. All even right. even your quirky little songs that you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are a few. That, my 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 iPod mix was probably one of the weirdest mixes <laughs> that you'll ever come across. It, it had everything. It had. Um, I hope you got it on Spotify for everyone to listen to. Oh, maybe I'll have to do that. <laughs> I might have to, to put it up. Uh, yeah. You can use that for your next Mate, podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, like there was like Tupac on there. There was Bone Thugs and Harmony with a bit of Ice Cube, and then you'd throw in all these dance dance or house tracks which was just purely instrumental stuff or movie soundtracks or even video game soundtracks if it had rhythm i'd listen to it yeah um but it was it was an interesting little mix that's for sure um but yeah in terms of i'd get up i'd get up at a not too early but i get up i don't know it's been a couple of years now i'd get up about 8 8 30 um go have breakfast um i'd always have something you know not too heavy but um, you know, something decent. Uh, then um, I'd just kind of chill for a bit. Um, then I'd go have lunch and I'd always eat usually chicken day off. I uh, never ate red meat because it was – or I'd never eat red meat the night before because mm-hmm. it would – you know, it takes a bit longer to digest, a bit heavier. Um, something safe, chicken and rice, um, chicken, chicken with vegetables, things like that. Um, and, yeah, that was always – that was always pretty safe. And, um, you know, I just hydrate a lot through the day. Uh, and then I'd, I'd actually go home and, um, (laughs) (laughs) we're laughing. We've got Matty Power snoring in the background here. I just threw a pair of headphones in his head too. (laughs) Oh, he's trying to keep keep ourselves together. He's so relaxed. 
love it. I love it. Look at him. You can't uh, be mad. Or he's bored. One of the two. But um, yeah, then I then after lying shy, I'd usually go back and have a nap. I'd actually sleep for about at least an hour, mm. hour and an hour and a half. I'd usually want to get up at about if it was a night race. I'd probably want to be up at about three. I'd wake up again about 3, 3.30, no later than that. I'd get up, shower. I'd usually eat an apple because that was always good for a bit of energy but nothing heavy. Um, and then I'd just, you know, just kind of hang around a bit, make sure I was kind of awake, make sure everything was packed, make, go through it about three times, make sure I wasn't forgetting anything. Yeah, it's such a good point. It's such so under, it's so over uh, underestimated just um, just making sure you've got everything in your bag before you get to the – there's nothing worse than getting there and yeah. being like – Crap, I've, I've left a spike oh, at home. I, I'd go every – well, the good thing is the Mizuno spikes I wore already had fixed spikes. Oh, so perfect. I never had to worry about that. Um, and that was another thing. I'd always run my eights in sprint spikes. I never Gee, ran them in yeah. distance spikes. There's light no light, light yeah. sprint spikes, because I was a 400 guy, especially when you're kicking home, you needed that you needed that rigidity in the plate to keep you on your toes because off a flat plate, you're just plotting. Mm. So for me, it was important for me to still have some spring. Um, but, yeah, I would go through everything so many times. And make sure I had everything, mm. and um, yeah, and then I'd, I'd probably usually usually uh, make a trip to the bathroom before I left. Um, usually number two, yeah, and then there'd be another. Hopefully, number... always hopefully. Well, <laughs> and then, but then there'd always be another number two. Yes. Always at, at the track, and usually it was just out of nerves as much as anything yeah, I else. Get it. Um, but you you didn't want to be carrying any extra weight nah. around, and you wanted to be light as you could be. Um, and, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. And then you'd, you'd, I'd listen to my crazy, uh, playlist and the rest just kind of writes itself. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. That's really interesting. And obviously, uh, it's like so much of what we've spoken about. It's stuff that has to be toyed with and adapted. And so anyone who's listening, who's new to Especially the sleep. I mean, the sleep, the afternoon nap was the most important part because if it's a night race, you've been up pretty early and you've had a flight the day before. You just need an hour where you've got enough time for you to wake up again where your body is able to shut down and you can forget it. And also you can forget about the race just for an hour mm. because when you're thinking about that all day, that drains you. So you're shutting the body down, you're shutting the mind down just for an hour. Yeah. And then you can recharge. Yeah, really good. Really good advice. And I think um, I was actually watching the the Doha uh, marathon, like the women's oh. marathon, the world champs just recently. And do I, not, think, I do not end Oh, that. it started at midnight, rightly so. I think it was still like 38, 40 degrees. Um, yeah, so when your race is like few and far between, I don't think I've ever heard that before, but it makes sense. Like if you've got a race, a, a race sort of late at night, yeah, it's helpful just to be able to get that rest. But you were always, um, from, from where I stood, I thought you were a really smooth mover. I like watching you run. Um, yeah, you always looked like you were well in control of your technique. And I think, um, I think technique is, is really underrated in a lot of ways in, in the athletic scene. You watch something like a, um, you know, you watch a, you watch a swimmer and obviously to move through the water, yeah, the most efficient technique is is super valuable in a lot of ways. But I, I think when you you mentioned Rudisha before, and you look at athletes like Al Garouge or Usain Bolt or just any elite performer, they seem to be doing it at a level that they just appear to be doing it more effortlessly than anyone else. Was technique something that that you worked on, or were you lucky oh, enough absolutely. just to? Yes. Well, because I came from a four hundred background, technique was probably more pronounced in a sprint event than, say, a middle distance event. Because sometimes you get your 800-meter runners who look rough as guts. I mean, you see Nigel Amos. I mean, he's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially even, when he's tired. <clears throat> yeah, or even Emmanuel Correa, whose head's nodding up and down and all over the shop. But in a 400, I, it was really drilled into me technique, and I would do a lot of plyometrics when I was quite young. 
I didn't do so much of that later on, but early in terms of working on technique, 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 and I worked with a few notable 400 coaches over the years. And the first one that kind of started to outline that to me was was Mike Hurst, uh, and then uh, moved later to Phil Geddes, whose son was a national champion, David, in the 200, and he worked on technique a lot as well. And even my dad, when he was coaching me through high school, you know, he would teach me basic. You know, he would, he was the one that taught me how to run relaxed, mm, really not necessarily in terms of the finer biomechanics, because I was too young for that. But he he was the one that I, I naturally would run relaxed. But he was the one that really taught me, you know, saying just drop the shoulders, just relax the face. You want the face to be all floppy, you know, almost like clay. Yes. Like putty. Yep. Um, and it was um, – and then later on, you know, yeah, with, with Phil Geddes and then Paul Hallam, who was the relay coach for, for, for London, um, Paul stressed efficiency in biomechanics and he, he made a lot of in, in-grounds with me uh, for my final season of fours. So coming from the four background, I came – I did have a more technical style, but also official, uh, sorry. Yeah, very official. Efficient. <laughs> yes. Efficient. Um, yeah, very efficient because I was generally quite an efficient 400 yeah. runner because I didn't do it off raw speed like the other guys. I did it off strength and efficiency. So I think that was just part of it was a natural flow, but a lot of it was because technique was something that I would work on and something I would be reminded because – Sometimes I would have a habit of my elbows maybe coming out too much and maybe going too side to side. Yeah, a lot of just misuse so, energy. Yeah. yeah, so I had to make sure everything was straight and there was no wasted energy and everything. And that was just in the race where you just want to feel easy. You don't want to feel as though you're even trying. Mm-hmm. The longer you can go through an 800 without feeling as though you're putting in any effort, the better. Yeah, such a good point. And uh, whenever uh, this is this is something that I'm so passionate about as well. I was lucky enough to, as a junior, I had horrendous technique. And I don't know if you've, I don't think you would have. His country, Victoria, used to coach a bloke called Julian Painter. My old coach, Joe Carmody, was his I name. I know that name, Julian yeah, Painter. Julian Painter. So I think he ran at the 2000 Olympics. He ran about 1320 for 5K. Yeah. He was a really quality athlete, especially as a junior. He was he was you know untouched pretty much. A little bit of a Mike Mike Power kind of type. Mm. Um, and Joe was, was for a really old guy. He seemed to have a really modern approach to running. And so often I find it frustrating speaking to a lot of modern coaches because obviously it's about, uh, it's about hard work. We get it. It's about consistency. We get it. Recovery. We get it. And the subject of technique comes up and it's like, no, no, let's not waste our energy focusing on that. And yet at the, you know, you'll get to a final lap or you'll get to the last couple of Ks for the longer runners. And you see, as you mentioned before, um, just a, an, an inability to know what to do with your form, like elbows are splaying, jaws tensed up, breath is really, really shallow, um, and it's just a real massive misuse of that energy. And I think the way I like to explain it was when I was at school, um, I remember my computer teacher teaching me how to touch type, mm. and she was saying, okay, you got to hold your fingers like this and you use this finger to touch this key, and over time it just, uh, she said it will become natural. But yep. for me, uh, I just wanted to, it was, it was frustrating, so I just wanted to use my index finger and do it really inefficiently, like yeah. like I had been. And then over time, thank God, I listened to it because now it's just uh, like anything with practice. It's just became a natural part of my day to day life. Touch typing is as, as easy as anything. And I think when you take that time in your in your running to not only focus on your training, but focus on your um, focus on your technique and actually get some guided instruction on on what to change, what to look out for, and when to. You, we've spoken about awareness of when to look out for. It. I think. It can be a real game changer, not only in helping prevent injury, but helping your efficiency towards the end of the run. Mm, absolutely. I mean, look, some coaches obsess too much about technique mm-hmm. to the point where their athletes start overthinking. Yes. And they can't do that either. 
But I do find it annoying when you see some people who have such obvious talent, but they've never had someone work on their technique. And look, I know this sounds, sometimes the technique shouldn't be touched. Maybe if the technique looks unorthodox, it should be left alone. But I do find it amazing when you do see some people who are world-class and, you know, who have such appalling technique. You think, what would they do if they just managed to clean things up a bit or had a few more cues and just had someone work with them? I mean, a 400-runner, Gil Roberts from the USA, big, strong guy and has got so much guts and he, he attacks his races so hard, but his technique is atrocious. And I think if someone had just broken him down a little bit more and worked on his technique, where would he have been? Um, and I think technique is something that should never be ignored, especially with distance because you see those people who do lose their form and they lose it at the end of their races. They really do. Um, I, think it's, I think it's that fine line of <clears throat> not obsessing but certainly refining. Mm. Um, and you see some, you know, you wonder why you see some, some of those smooth moves. You see, as you said, your El Garouges, your Carl Lewis's. Oh, I mean, I've never seen a guy move like him. Um, you know, or even guys who don't necessarily move like Carl Lewis, but you can see their basic biomechanics are strong. And I actually remember um, looking, there were three people in a 400 at the World Champs uh, way back in 03. There was Jerome Young. I know he's a slightly bad example because it turned out he was taking, taking mm. something. But there was Jerome Young who won it. There was Tyree Washington and there was Mark Raquel. And you looked at Young who won it, dead straight, dead relaxed, just absolutely Dead straight. You saw Tyree Washington pretty relaxed, rotating a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then you saw Raquel head cocked back, <laughs> shoulders there, just tense face. Yeah. And you saw the difference between the three. And, you know, it's just something that simply can't be ignored. Mm. Um, and I think certainly there are just basic things. You know, if the elbows are coming out, my coach Penny, even with Joel Milburn, who was an Olympian, would get him to run with the sticks because – he would, he would run with elbows out, so he'd be running with the sticks, just with the little sticks in his hand, mm-hmm. just to make sure that he was running straight. Yeah. If there was, you know, rotation, rotation, you know, obviously strengthen the core up, but try to get them to run straighter. Yeah. You know, simply with the arms, you know, just working on the arms, even on the slower reps. You know, just where where they're not in as much of a panic. So interesting. One of the one of the things Joe Carmody used to get his athletes to do from time to time. It was more fun, but just to make a point, was he was he was a, a really big believer in just like keeping your face like putty. You know, you don't want your hands to be rock solid like no. this and lose control. So holding he would say, okay, no, holding eggs. So he'd bring a thing, of, <laughs> he'd bring a thing of eggs down to the track. As I said, more of a joke, but it was so funny trying to sprint 200 metres with two raw eggs in your hand, knowing that if I get tight, these go everywhere. So was it really true that message home? Oh, dear, oh dear. Oh, the eggs, a, that's, that's an interesting one. There might be a bit of a clean-up on aisle five. Oh, I tell you track. what, yeah, there was a couple of clean-ups on aisle five. Mate, we've got a, a couple of minutes left before I wanted to wrap it up. But sure. um, what I was really interested in that far, I've already got a wealth of knowledge from, from what you've said, but... Um, for anyone out there who who is you know new to the sport, unsure where to start, unsure what to do, um, from person your perspective with years and years of knowledge up your sleeve, uh, just would love you to just fire a few little tips at them if you can think of two or okay. three, and it can be it can be from anything from diet to technique sure. to whatever you want. Okay, uh, first one, have patience. Mm-hmm. It's a waiting game. Sometimes it's not going to come overnight. I didn't run my I didn't run my personal best, lifetime best. PR, whatever you want to call it. I didn't, I didn't run that until I was 32. I didn't make my first Aussie team. In fact, my only Aussie team until I was 33. 
Um, you know, these things, they take time. You've got to have patience. You've got to persevere. Um, certainly, that's the first thing. I would say the second thing is train smart. Don't overload yourself, especially when you're young and you're going through school. I honestly don't recommend those who train almost full-time during school because your body's still going through changes. And most schoolboy athletes, they burn out. Mm. Or schoolgirl athletes. Most school athletes, they burn out and they get injured because their body isn't able to take the load. You know, enjoy enjoy your athletics through school. Don't, you know, don't take it, you know, take it seriously if, if that's what your passion is, but don't, don't obsess about it. And, you know, it, it's, I didn't bother even running a nationals until my second last year of high school. And even then I still wasn't training all year round. It wasn't until my last year of high school. You know, take your time. No one's going to really probably remember what you did as a junior, but they'll damn sure remember mm-hmm. what you did as a senior. Yeah. Um, so take your time with it and just enjoy it through years. Don't worry about junior titles. You know, they're nice to get. If you can get them, sure. But if you're really serious about it, just worry about what you want to do as a senior athlete because that's, mm-hmm. when, that's, that's when it matters. Yeah. And um, in turn, and have faith, have faith in your coach and, um, you know, and also know that there's not just one way to do it. There's so many different ways to skin a cat. Um, it's it's you just every, you've, every athlete is different. You're all going to have your different techniques. They can be refined. You're all going to have your different training training mm. techniques. You're always always going to have your different programs. Um, and it's a case of just knowing you, knowing you, but also knowing that your coach knows you as well. They're probably the the three most important things yeah. I'd say. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's, uh, it's been good. It's been nice just for me to sit down and be able to pick your brain on a few of these things. So I can't imagine how athletes all around Australia, are, are, you know, are, are, how much they're going to take away from that. So, well, but, hopefully, hey, I can put a few pearls of wisdom there. Um, well, mate, yeah. I've got twenty three of them already, just from that last, you know, sixty minutes of chat. <laughs> all right. Thanks, well, Gary. That was good, mate. Not a worry, mate. Cheers. Cheers.